0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding on air live with Mr. Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today?
1: It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you?
0: It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to check out all of our content on the internet. The best place to do that is to follow me on Twitter at, at focused compound that's where I put out all the content that we upload uh, I tweet a bunch of different investing things I find interesting and just basically everything centered around focused compounding comes out through my Twitter at focused compound uh, you could get that handle in the description um, if you need it um, if you want to learn more about our money management services blog posts by Jeff um, and then, of course, uh, our podcast backlog. Well, you could go to a podcast app or you could go to focuscompounding.com and get access to all that information. So, there is no investor on the internet that has more content than we do, going all the way back to 2005 by Jeff. And you could get access to that just by going to www.focuscompounding.com and scrolling down to click December 2005. And you will get all his old write-ups for free at focusedcompounding.com um i did reference our money management services if you want to learn more about that click the invest with us tab at our website and you'll get everything that you will need on that Uh, but jeff is still uploading blog posts um so you could get those free posts at our website right on the homepage, www.focuscompounding.com. Everything that we do is going to be in the description down below. So speaking of blog posts, Jeff, you had uploaded three new articles to the website. We can quickly go over them. Of course, people can view them themselves, like I said, by going to Focus Compounding. And you wrote about Alico, uh, which the title is Alico, ticker A-L-C-O fails to report results on time, blames deferred tax liability accounting issue. So maybe take us through here. I mean, you, you wrote about what is this five paragraphs, very brief, but what is it? I mean, with these small companies, I mean, this company seemed to have had it together. Why did they fail to report on time? Is this something that's
1: pretty severe? Is this something that would worry you? Is this an easy fix? What are your thoughts? Well, we can see on OTC markets, maybe if they've updated it, they came out with a press release after this, a few days after. um, So they read your post. Yeah, setting a new date for their uh, financial results release. But they did fail. um, This would have been the 10K to file on that day. Um, And they basically said on the day that it was coming out, uh, scheduled to come out that so the so far we just have that they provide uh let's see oh no yeah so yesterday mm-hmm. they did do it so it was a one week delay basically right um so they the thing that was interesting about it, of course is that it came out um i believe the day they were supposed to report and have a conference call and everything you know th- saying that they were delaying it so it wasn't like they announced ahead of time that they were going to delay it Um, Obviously, if a company just puts out a 10K normally without saying we're going to report our results on such and such a day, then they don't have to say we're delaying it, right? Um, so like NACA would have to say we're delaying it cause they do this thing where they say we're going to report on such and such a date and there's a conference call and a press release and all that. But we invest in plenty of companies where, you know, they just drop a 10 K or a 10 Q they might, you know, there might be a press release that's included as like an eight K, but they don't say ahead of time it's happening. It just happens. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, we're in some companies like that now for really big companies that almost never happens. So Alco has increased their investor relations over time and they do this, um, uh, so so because of that, and there's been a change in who kind of is running things at the company. Um, I think I got into that in my blog post originally about it. But I also mentioned in that um, little uh, blog post that the uh, they had a CFO leave earlier this year, so they have a new CFO too. So having a new CFO and dealing with issues like that, I mean, sometimes that does, more likely that you would find issues that you think there's a problem with the thing that they explained and they explained how they would have to change it is that if uh they said that if required would be a decrease in the deferred tax liability and an increase in retained earnings for the prior period or an out of period adjustment increasing net income for fiscal 2022. so what they mean is that they would have to what they're basically saying in that sentence is that they may have overestimated their deferred tax liability and then thereby underestimated the retained earnings, which is right? great for investors. Uh, it is. Yeah. That would be a positive. So the, I think they, they didn't get that explanation when they first said that, um, you know, they, they gave that explanation when they did a follow up. I think the next day or something like that. Um, so they just said that we're putting it off and everything. And then they gave this explanation of what would be the, the change probably because of questions right, from investors of what does this mean that you might have to restate prior periods. And they said that they could go back to fiscal 2019. And so now they did report. So that was yesterday. I figured that I would follow up with that and write another blog post after they actually reported, which is what I was waiting for. Um, originally, I was going to update it. But then I thought, you know, my blog post would be really short just saying, oh, they said they're going to do it this week. And I was worried about that because there's a couple other companies. Tandy was one. IEHC was one. Where if I did that, I'd keep saying it because they kept saying, we think we're going to report and then here's an update on it. Here's another update, you know, so this doesn't affect the SEC stuff because obviously they didn't have to file and you have a pretty long grace period for filing for a 10 K. Um, and you can request a longer period. Mm hmm. Well, it's good that they got it done pretty quickly. Yeah. So it's a pretty big item deferred tax liability overall for the company is a pretty big item, but, um, it it is interesting they've had a lot of you know land sales over time and all that so we'll see what happens exactly but obviously they pointed out pretty benign sort of thing there but if they have problems um you know there have been companies that have restated things before that are generally a positive Um, many years ago microsoft was forced to restate um, but that was kind of connected to that. So with Microsoft, um, it, they had under understated the retained earnings. Um, but in that case, I think that also kind of gave insight into that. They might've engaged in some smoothing of the earnings. And so that may have been why that was happening. Um, and you know, uh, it, it's always a bit of a concern. The company's fairly small in terms of the number of people in management and everything. And like I said, the CFO left, I gave the quote about the prior CFO. Um, and I also talked about how the stock is now basically trading at about 50% of what they've said in the past, you know, they estimate the value of the land is. So they give you that breakdown of the enterprise value and everything. And I think they estimate their land is worth, you know, uh, this is includes both the citrus groves and the ranch land though, you know, 500, um, million or something like that in the category of 500 to 500. Well, let's see, they have the slide here. Mm -hmm. so this was Um, from what's one this is from june 13th presentation yeah Uh, and we just need the raw top number that it has yeah there we go so they estimate the uh, implied enterprise value is what they're saying which is what they mean would be the value of our land 505 million to 628 million the market cap now what is it at 200 million yeah there's 100 million of debt so if you take a Right. So if you take the bottom end of their estimate, 505 million, subtract 100 million of debt um, and then adjust for the fact that today the stock's down 10 percent, that's 400 million. And then you have half of that. Um, Their debt's a little higher now, but basically they're saying that net of debt, their land is probably worth about 400 million. And then um, the uh, market cap then would be about half. Of the value of the land but of course a huge portion of that as you can see in the estimate is the citrus land right mm-hmm. the ranch land really only covers the the debt mm-hmm. but but I would point out that another way to think about the company is you're basically getting the citrus groves and the operating business on them for free uh, I mean not for free but for, for no debt you know that is that the price that you're paying is just buying that at book value at, at fair market value I should say um, that the debt, yes, there is debt, but it's not something to worry about because it really is covered entirely by the ranch land. Um, and they have, in fact, been selling off ranch land, paying down debt at times and paying out d- dividends. And they have quite a high dividend, actually, that they've paid at times. So I'll revisit it. So this is kind of just like I'll, I'll bef- between now and our next podcast, I'll have done another write-up of Alico. I was waiting for them to come out with this update and see if that gives any more insight into it. But obviously it raises some concerns about um, the accounting and all of that, especially if there's been a change between who's running the company over time, if there's been a change with CFOs and all of that. Um, and I always worry about that with smaller and less well-known companies. This is not a tiny company. Um, that you know, I think that the requirements of reporting to the SEC and the accounting and everything are important and often value investors overlook that part and it can be bad when you get into a situation where that's not handled real well. Mm -hmm. i mean do you think this is a situation where you go from i don't want to say
0: less of a professional cfo but maybe they did a search and did hire a quote-unquote professional cfo that maybe has more experience with this sort of stuff and he's looking at the situation as hey you know actually you guys misaccounted for this i mean it's a weird timeline that like you pointed out in your article that you know the old CFO quits they bring in somebody new and then you know now they have this Issue, if you want to call it an issue, I mean, I guess I would say it's a positive issue for shareholders, but
1: it's still something, right? Yeah, I think it's been more professionalized over time. Um, um, it was more controlled by people who were sort of large owners; they owned it through investment vehicles and stuff. But yeah, I'd say it's more of it's it's moving more of a time towards more of an operator-run um, company rather than with professional management at the top, rather than a more closely controlled company.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you look at their investor relations campaign uh and especially like their presentations this is what you would want to see in a in a land bank i mean i wouldn't even put this in the same category as other entities we've seen that are quote-unquote land banks right like they actually generate cash and have an operating business on top of it that is interesting but i mean read these slides right here if you're watching on youtube i mean it has been returning substantial capital approximately 174.2 million of capital returned since 2014 including 29.8 million of capital return in fiscal year 2022 to date i mean at a 200 million dollar market cap over the past four years that's a lot of capital that's been returned
1: yeah and they're mostly longer term debt things they have a balloon payment i think in 2026 maybe no 2026 2029 in that range there's some balloon payment because they redid it from recently to go to interest only and stuff but it's mostly long-term fairly low fixed rate there's a mix of things but as is traditionally things with these permanent planting stuff it's very low cost of capital if you have timberland and orange grove whatever um, you can usually get some really good um, low cost of capital on that Uh, so we'll see i'll talk about it in uh, another um, blog post and the other two things to keep in mind is it was hit by a hurricane they they think you know they will be update on that i'm sure but they think that that's mostly damage to this this particular year and not damage for long term that they permanently destroyed a lot of trees and then um the other thing is this was the worst year for florida orange industry in terms of the harvest uh almost ever i mean it was it was terrible so but we knew that, and you know the the um, the government reports on that, and that was no, you know um, and it, you know one a particularly bad harvest in one year doesn't mean that others will be, and, and that's usually due to like weather, you know mm. is why you have that. It's just weather things from one year to the next. So you know, the orange juice that you're drinking in the United States is probably a mix, in fact, it probably says it on it of um oranges from Florida of which maybe this company might be at 10% or so of, of all the oranges that are produced there um, for juice oranges, and uh, Brazil. That's basically where it all comes from. Sometimes it's juice from both of those places because that you know it would have to disclose that, I think. Um, but there's some specialty ones that I think use California oranges or something, but they're not big brands. Um, and actually, I don't think it tastes as good. Uh, this, but it's more expensive. This company um, it basically supplies Tropicana. Mm-hmm. You know, are you interested in this company generally, or do you actually mm-hmm. think there's
0: like potential to be an investment one day?
1: Yeah, I'm interested in this company. Definitely.
0: The reason I'm yeah. asking is because I think probably one of the most common questions we get, and I think a lot of aspiring investors are just people on their journey. They think about this a lot. It's like, where's that point where you finally pull the trigger right all things being equal let's say you know certain portfolio things or whatever but here you laid out a situation where um you know they're returning capital I would say it's a pretty defensible business they have you know some sort of moat in what they're doing um the equity value based on you know what they think the land is worth and their business is worth well just the land I guess is more than double what you could purchase uh, a stake for in the open market. I mean, this kind of reminds me of those Buffett situations, the Washington Post or Disney that we've talked about where it's like, well, you don't need to know the person's weight to know that it's uh, that they're fat. Right. Um, you know, what more math do you need? Basically, they're returning capital to shareholders. They have their uh, their capital allocation policy in place. They are shifting to a more professional organization.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, how are you kind of thinking about that? Well, I haven't visited any of the company's properties or anything or the area. Um, I haven't spoken to management and I know nothing about the other major um, owners. In fact, there might be ways to figure out some of it, but I've tried to figure out a little bit and know very little about them. I've only heard kind of rumors and things and guesses and speculation. Um, So those are kind of the things about like cap allocation from that, both just in terms of ownership and board and stuff, not just top management. Um, And then the management and what they're really thinking other than what we see in the investor presentations and then also seeing the property is more helpful, especially for seeing general area around the property, which, you know, we've done for some other companies Mm -hmm. is better for knowing long term if there's a different higher and best use for some of the land Um, because some of the areas it starts to be built up by things around it, like we're talking about, you know, with the ranch land or whatever, these are very, very low value things, sort of like timberland, ranch land is some of the, you know, lowest value land there is. So if anything starts to get fairly close to it in those counties and stuff, um, the possibility that the value of the land could be a lot more over time gets a lot bigger, you know, Um, because any other use can sometimes be a much uh, more valuable use. You know, they talked about here in one of them that, you know, nearby um, one of the, sales, there's uh, something that's used for uh, Walmart, which wanted something. And, you know, obviously they paid a lot more than you would get for the use of land um, normally because, you know, they can put it to much better use in terms of what their returns on capital are and everything. So uh, that's all things to be interesting. Also, you have the slide there, the mineral rights, um, you know, because actually there's some like um, some of their historical land that they have is actually not that Far in some places from some of the historical land that was the old Florida Rock, Um, if you remember that company, which was you know FRP Holdings and all that, there's a little bit of it that's actually close to that. So when they talk about like um, sand and all that and the oil and gas things, you know, there's some things that were used for other stuff. Um, So because what what they're talking about there is the mineral rights. Is that I believe, I believe that's correct. I'd have to check it. um, That they severed. The mineral rights um so when they sold they've sold they used to be much much bigger landowner uh, much bigger landowner in the history of this company so si- similar to um Kuh-Naw land association right which used to be like five times the size that it ended up being um this company was much larger and then sold off ranch land and things like that and uh so that you could end up with mineral rights that aren't on land that you own anymore if you sold the land without selling the mineral rights obviously
0: mm-hmm do you could would you think about the future value so like the area around uh the land that they own is being sort of like a call option right where it's like well you know that could only go up uh over time where it currently stands is it's you know way higher the value of it's way higher than where it currently is trading at in the market and then over time if things start to be a little bit more developed that's a call option for you where the value of the land becomes much more valuable or could be much more valuable.
1: Yeah. And with inflation over time, if it's sustained for long enough period of time, and if you have a state and area that's growing more then obviously the the land can be worth more than what you estimate at originally. Uh, If you have a really low cost of borrowing and you're not really putting stuff into a lot of the land that you have, um, you know, the ranch land for instance, um, you know, the value can hold very well. Because you know it's you have you're paying in in money, um at some fixed rate and you're carrying something which is has the potential to go up, um and really hold this real value. So it's not a bad thing to have, and it's certainly not. I mean, if if instead of land it was cash, people might look at the company differently, right? Because like I like I said, that would eliminate the debt. Like they do things like EB to EBITDA, right? I see people valuing on EB to EBITDA, but that to me seems strange because they're not getting a lot of EBITDA off of the ranch. So why are you adding the debt if the debt on the ranch is the same? The, the ranch land and the debt are probably pretty similar in value. If the ranch land didn't exist, then presumably there'd be more money to pay out to shareholders and then EBITDA of the citrus groves would make sense. I understand using EBITDA on the citrus groves because the citrus groves are being used to produce the EBITDA. Now they could st- still sell some of them sometimes if it has a much higher use than use of the citrus grove, but that's much more valuable as groves and they produce a bunch of you know cash flow from that. But I just mean like on screeners and things, I think it would screen better or whatever if you took the debt away and the ranch land away because the screeners aren't really capturing any sense of like value from the ranch land, but they are putting $100 million in debt on the company's balance sheet uh, because most people aren't looking at like price to book or adjusting it for their estimate of the fair value and the net asset value and all of that. So it's the same as when we talk talk about Timberland or any of those other things or Maryland and Pineapple, where if the price to book if they just bought the land today and then the price to book dropped to half, it would show up on all these screeners and everything. But if the land is carried at old values and so the price versus the fair market value looks attractive, it's not tripping things the same way and interesting people in it. Um, So you kind of have to do those adjustments yourself. If you look at the stock chart from like 1992, I mean the stock, basically all your return has come from dividends. Yeah. And you can see in the news, it says, Alco slashes dividend by 90% amid Hurricane Ian impact. So mm-hmm. that's based on yesterday, presumably, and that's why the stock's down 10% today. And so that's why I'll have to write that up in the um, you know, in the week ahead. Yeah, that's a very interesting
0: situation, though. I like the business itself and, uh, I guess, shifting to a more professional organization, but also that's focused around capital allocation and being more marketable, I guess, if you will, to investors, right? They feel like clearly they're undervalued and uh, that's uh, pretty interesting to see.
1: Yeah. The one thing I worry about a little bit with them is that the amount of investor presentation and everything um, for a company that's this, it's all about land sales and about a highly um, cyclical and weather and everything based type thing is it's kind of confusing for investors and that any sort of guidance isn't really a great idea, I think. I think explaining what you're doing and um, reporting on the impact of some things is fine, like of hurricanes and you know, of a bad harvest or a good harvest or whatever. But it's a little bit like um, when we talked about universal insurance in Florida, where they give guidance absent you know weather events, absent hurricanes and stuff. But a huge part of their business you know is affected by hurricanes. This sort of thing is like, well, what would the EBITDA be in a normal year? They could tell people, but there's very good years and very bad years um, for oranges, and so people have to. Look at that, and I think like you're never going to attract a big base of shareholders who are interested in what re- EPS is going to be reported this year and all that. Hmm. So you really need more of like value investors or whatever people who are interested in your cap allocation and your assets and all that. If you want a good shareholder base here for this kind of company, it's not really the right company to be focused a lot on let's give you guidance quarter by quarter and conference calls on that and all of that. I know that's what companies normally do. And that seems like what you would do to attract institutions to that. But I think it's going to be hard. Um, And you see that like if you slash your dividend, then maybe your stock goes down a lot when it does because you attract people for the dividend, of course Um, maybe larger special dividends and things when they sell stuff would make more sense too. Uh, I feel like the regular dividend is really high, um, which is usually not a complaint that people have, but is really high compared to the actual cash flows of the business. Um, whereas they could pay out like more special dividends or large buybacks or something around, um, sales of land and, and things like that when they have a better idea of their capital needs. Cause it's not that they don't have enough capital. Um, you know, they're well capitalized and everything, I think, but I don't know that their EBITDA is all that rel- or their actual cash flow from operations, free cash flow is all that reliable from year to year in a business like this, where you know, pricing and volume both move a lot. Like when I say it's a bad year for oranges, like the actual volume dropped by trees is low this year. So it's not just, oh, what are the prices? This is really complicated um sort of thing to have. Do you think companies like this are better off being private
0: because of that? cyclicality
1: yeah but i also think you can attract the right shareholder base i think you Mm -hmm. just have to realize that your shareholder base is completely different from someone else's but yeah i mean this is a stock that like a third avenue value could have owned when it was um Mm -hmm. marty whitman or whatever um it's a thing that you know peter lynch who liked asset plays as one of the categories of things that he could own could own that um but you have to track people who are particularly interested in those things because he could Um, being interested yeah, right, exactly, Gabelli, right. So those those kinds of um, investors who you could lay out like a sum of the parts and what's your capital allocation and trying to kind of increase over time what we think, you know, the quote-unquote intrinsic value of it is, um, or at least like what the fair market value of our assets are plus, you know, all of that um, to kind of like show the ongoing liquidation value of the company, even though you don't intend to liquidate the company, that over time, if it's going up or down, um, I think that makes a lot of sense. The EBITDA thing, although EBITDA is what everyone uses, I think is a little tricky mm-hmm. because, you know, no matter what, it's going to vary a lot based on things like volume and pricing. And you could have a year where you have bad volume at the same time you have bad pricing because like I said, it's not all from Florida from places there. And so if there's a big harvest in Brazil, but a terrible year in Florida, that might hurt you particularly badly. Whereas you might get lucky and have a year where you, production is strong in florida and it's not in brazil or whatever and then you have strong pricing and strong volume Mm -hmm. so on this why invest in alico
0: slide uh, it says 42 percent institutionally owned do you have any sort of uh knowledge about the shareholder base is it larger funds is there
1: is it like a controlled entity right so i do have some knowledge of it but i don't know a lot about anything about the people who are involved with those things that owned a lot of the stock in it before there was an agreement with it, which I take it is sort of like a, um, unwinding of a partnership, I think is Mm -hmm. probably the real reason why that happened, but I don't know that exactly because the Alico part of it doesn't really explain that, but that certainly seems like what happened that shares were distributed to people through the, through the fund that originally owned it together. Um, and I don't know much at all about that, but there was obviously a change over, in um control in the sense of um actually administering the company although not necessarily in terms of a lot of the ownership of the shares very interesting i would love
0: to go see this i mean orange groves come on that looks beautiful i should say that we do not own uh alico but uh uh so do your own due diligence but that is a stock that you could also uh read more about it uh, and focus compounding, not just this blog post, but Jeff actually laid out a thesis, yeah. Uh, yeah February 7th, that? 2021, okay. instead of Florida, orange growers selling land, paying down debt, and focusing on its core business, um, which is true as well. I know when I did reference, most of your return has come from dividends as an equity holder, that is true. Um, but they have also paid down debt, so I guess from like a enterprise value standpoint, but as an equity holder, uh, most of your dividends have come or most of your turn has come from dividends but this is interesting right we've talked a lot about mlp on this podcast and Mm -hmm. throughout focus compounding's history and you know it's different because they're actually monetizing the land a little bit more mlp is really a controlled land bank uh that like i said i mean emphasis on controlled and doesn't seem like there's any sort of emphasis or motivation to monetize the land and it looks like alico is trying to do that in some way Mm -hmm. or be just more presentable to investors Mm -hmm. i don't think maui land and pineapple cares at all no let's go back to the homepage. so you also um you also wrote a blog post what to read to learn more about disney so we speak a lot about disney on the podcast Mm -hmm. and you laid out three books that you recommend the right of a lifetime by bob Iger, uh disney war and Walt Disney by, by Neil Gabler, uh, which covers mm-hmm. Walt's life. Great books.
1: Disney war is great. I want to reread that actually. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, one of my favorites. And I also mentioned for, um, the company as it is now and to learn about it all the time that way, the science of hitting, which is a sub stack, mm-hmm. um, that's a good one to read because it covers a lot of media and things like that in Disney in particular, um, so those books are, you know, out of date. Uh, the Iger one is the uh, most recent, um, but they're obviously out of date in terms of the exact way of what the company is made up of and everything. But to know the kind of the history of the company and the history of the assets that formed it, um, those three books I've read and they're they're very good. Um, I think people would enjoy all three of them. Uh, mm-hmm. Probably, yeah. Right of Lifetime would be the easiest. Um, you know, it's not a particularly deep book, uh, pr- particularly hard read. And it's the most recent, so some people will be most familiar with that way. Disney War is kind of the most famous historically, yeah. um, because it's a bit um more of an ugly situation it's and amazing. all of that. It's a yeah. fun read.
0: Yeah. Six hundred twenty um, pages.
1: But, right. But what people might overlook on that is Disney War is probably about only half the book or so is really the part about the, you know, the Disney war part of it. The other half is sort of the good part of um, Eisner's reign there at Disney. So it's, it's actually a really comprehensive book that way. And then Walt Disney is just, it's a very good biography, um, very comprehensive biography of Walt Disney. Mm-hmm. And The Science of Hitting is a good follow on Twitter
0: as well. Uh, but speaking mm-hmm. of books, you also did a blog post about six books I've read recently. And you know I have a question, where do you find, and somebody had actually texted me, they're like, where does Jeff find these very obscure books, right? Limping on Water, Beating the Odds, Ski Inc., which I actually, out of all of these, these, uh, you did recommend reading uh, Limping on Water, which I have read. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next one I want to read is Ski Inc. Uh, but it's like you say, a manager's account of running different ski resorts in the U.S. like Limping on Water. This is basically just about the jobs he held and what he had to do. Um, mm-hmm. So I just thought it was interesting, right? I've never come across this book before. I mean, are you just kind of like does Amazon recommend these books to you just based on different books you've read or people bringing these books? I mean, how do you find these very obscure, interesting
1: business books? Sure. So some people recommend them to me. So I get that. Sometimes those are some of the most obscure because people research something or whatever, and they recommend it for that reason. Um, there are places where it's been mentioned before. I don't really use them anymore, but like there was, and I'm sure there still is a um, thread on Corner Berkshire and Fairfax about books. So there may be things like that where people would recommend it. So then you could check those. Um, I also use the bibliography or the works cited of books. And um, when reading a book, I. Take note of any books that they mention that they're sourcing it from, that they're quoting from, or that there's a footnote from, or whatever, and then look into that. Um, And so that would help with finding things connected to the same company or the same story um and yeah amazon amazon's gotten much much worse this way though because amazon's taken on a lot of advertising and so it has all these sponsor products (laughs) things and so now finding things that are recommended just because they are actually what is related to what you might want to read has become harder because they put a lot of sponsor products above that sometimes and sometimes they actually even get rid of that section for it and replace it when there weren't a lot of books there and replace it with all sponsored things which are basically just you know they'll just show up as just business books and stuff because no one's buying advertising for really small books um and great texas banking crash is probably from the um blog we talked about on banking mm-hmm. they had a list of books and so i read some of the books uh i mean i think i have like most of them or something from that um site and that you could get your hands on and um And then I read a lot of things in print, obviously. So that varies sometimes where you can get used books and whatever. Like Mm -hmm. in this case, you know, here it is for $6 or whatever plus delivery, not very expensive. Um, There are others that are really expensive because if demand, you know, if it's never been printed again, you know, which happens with smaller books. It's like margin of safety. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, I think I mentioned the Teledyne book, the Ben Graham's memoirs, Um, a couple of those things are very, uh, at times get high-priced, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is impossible. You know, it's a $2,000, the one you're mentioning, Margin of Safety. Um, but even other ones like, uh, um, like I said, the Teledyne book that I mentioned, I've kind of not recommended to people that they actually spend it because it's a very dry book for what they'll get for spending, you know, whatever it is, $100 or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, and the same thing with Ben Graham's memoirs, while well, I enjoy it and everything, uh you know, most people are going to find that it's a lot of money to pay for something that is a lot focused on not his investment things. Cause you know, that wasn't necessarily the thing he was most interested in. Mm Um,
0: let me see. Uh, last time I checked, this book was like a 10 bagger for me, the focus investor by Richard Rockwood. Uh, but -hmm. it looks like there's no price on that right now. Auto print, limited availability. So I don't know, but you know, Once upon a time, about a year ago, I came across it and I was like, whoa, this book's been a 10 bagger for me. Let's, let's, (laughs) let's hodl it. Let's hold on and let's see where
1: we end up in 10 years. Yeah. And so there are other websites you can go on to that sometimes are even better for buying books than Amazon for when they're out of print things and all of that. Like Um, well, I mean, not only does Barnes and Noble have a site, but there's also, um, what is it? Uh, a books, something like that. Yeah. Um, which also will connect you to a bunch of used things. Amazon, for ones where it's a pretty, there was originally printed pretty big, does have a pretty active used market. Um, so, I mean, I think all of these, all of these were bought off Amazon. Yes, I was able to buy all of these on Amazon. So, um, limping on water, beating the odds, um, which is the ABC story, uh, which has a forward, you know, uh, the introduction by Warren Buffett, by the way um some of these are also funny because they're you know the author has written something on them to somebody so who knows what that's all about but like so my copy of beating the odds for instance happens to be one of those things um so like as in like you bought it used Hmm. i believe do they have it well it says now that you can buy it free i but buy it new i guess but uh yeah i i bought it much lower for at uh, used yeah yeah buck
0: 68 I always buy used personally. It doesn't bother me. And, and honestly, I like to see what other people have, you know, either scribbled in the margins or what they've underlined. I, uh, and, and again, like here's a perfect example. Uh, a new book would cost uh,
1: about 40 bucks, uh, but you could get a used one for a dollar sixty-eight. Right. I like that trade off. Right. For books where they weren't a lot printed and stuff, often the used ones are a much better purchase. Um, it mostly mm-hmm. just matters who the seller is. So if it's one of these sellers that you're used to that, whether it's like Goodwill or ThriftBooks or something that's very large in certain places and you've bought a lot from them and, you know, uh, that works out fine for some of the other ones, it's not as good. Um, but to be honest, I've gotten more problems for buying new things and stuff from Amazon sending me the wrong thing than, uh, anything else. So I actually, the used books have generally been fine that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, how was Ski Ink, though? Was that a great book? Out of all these, which one was I think, your favorite? I think you would like Ski Ink. Uh, my favorites were Power Failure and Beating the Odds. Uh, Power Failure? Okay, yeah. so about GE. Yes. Uh, I liked Power Failure better than Lights Out. Interesting. It's what very comprehensive, though. It's very long. Um, so it is... Uh, 816 pages yeah but it's like a hundred and some pages of notes it's like the snowball i mean i think the actual thing is it. maybe 670 pages i don't remember exactly maybe it's low 700s um it has a huge thing on the notes um so that's a history of g for the entire period but mainly it's focused on um you know more than half the book probably is just jack welch and jeff emilt um And then the other part, though, is the original, how it was created and all of that up to then. So it is interesting that way. Um, If you really want to know sort of what happened in those, whatever, 30 years or whatever, that the two of them were in charge, um, then, well, no, closer to 40 years, I guess, um, then that's the book to read, I would say. Um, So those are the best. I mean, a history of the whole company is something that I would love to read. I would love to have a history of Cap. Uh, capital cities from the beginning till um, it it was sold to Disney. I'd love for a corporate history of Disney, not of Walt Disney, the person, but through the entire period, because interestingly, there are gaps really in the coverage of Disney there from a corporate or Mm -hmm. financial perspective. There are pretty big gaps between the time that, that um, like, for instance, there's very little coverage in anything except contemporary reports about what happened between the time that Walt died and that Eisner took over like very little about the situation the company got in. And, and so this period about sort of a decline in Disney's prospects um is not really well covered by anyone because they don't really go back that far and talk about all of it. They talk a little bit about it, you know, in Disney war, they talk a little bit about, about it with other ones. And there's a lot of coverage of it from the perspective of what Disney was putting out. So there is mm-hmm. plenty of perspective from the um, people who like Disney films and, you know, criticize them or whatever and stuff like that but not from a corporate perspective. There's very little information about that. Um, So there's actually no real good book that's a corporate history of Disney as a corporation from beginning to end. What year did Walt Disney die? Uh, Let's see. Around 1965, I don't know the exact death year. um, He would have died within a year or so of Buffett's investment, a year or two. So when would Buffett's investment have been? Buffett would have been before... He's still on Berkshire stock, actually. We know it, but did some Disney stock in Berkshire, but presumably he sold or whatever um, when he wound up the partnership. So around then. says that he died uh, December 15th, 1966.
0: 66, okay. Have you gone to this resource before? I don't know if you've seen. I, I know I did email it to you at one point, but there's this huge collection of archived annual reports from a bunch of America's greatest companies and uh they have like an annual report jeff you would like this especially like when you're reading these uh, biographies and stuff of in this case walt disney uh the annual report from 1966 there's an annual report for disney from 1965 1975 1955 wow. but kind of cool that you could just go and there's this huge collection of archived annual reports i mean this is 40 pages so i mean it literally has you know the whole thing in there Uh, So if you want to, you know, to your point about getting more information about like the corporation itself, I'm sure you've come across this, but uh, this uh, thing that I tweeted out has all these, uh, you know, old archived reports, which I think is fun just to spend time in. I think the oldest one that was in here was like mid 1800s or something. I mean, it was, I mean, very, uh, very old. So it's cool. I mean, Just America's most common companies, yeah.
1: So you retweet that or something so people can see it?
0: Yeah, I just actually tweet out because I'm creating a collection of um, just like the best timeless investing content on the internet. Uh, I tweeted this December 6th, the last week, and that uh, is on there, uh, that archive.org drive, I guess, if you will. And I'm just going to continue to add to that. So anyone that wants to get access to this collection of looks like 1331 different annual reports some of them going back to the 1800s you have uh the quaker oats company from 1920. it's fun to read like in the context of what you're interested in so if you're interested in like inflation you could go back to like inflationary times and read uh what each company was basically thinking about their projections for the future, how they were communicating, and stuff like that. I don't know. I just think it's a it's a cool database of like history of different companies, uh, you know, over the past couple hundred years. So I think you would like that, Jeff. Like, mm-hmm. for example, uh, typing in Disney and getting more information on that. So a couple of podcasts ago, you had said that one thing that you think people would be surprised to learn about. As it relates to your investing process is how much books are part of the process so can you like take us through like sort of your playbook if you will you come across a new company you're not familiar with it you read the annual report or the 10k 10q maybe some transcripts or just get caught up on the business do you from there go to like amazon and type in said name to see if there's a book written about it i mean we've spoken a lot about NACO on here and you purchased a book about NACO's history, right? So like, do you just kind of come across it in your research? Do you always look to go out and find a book that is either on the industry or other companies in the industry, competitors, et cetera? That's a huge part of your investing process. So take us through that uh,
1: for anyone that wants to replicate what you do. Yeah, I certainly do that. Um, Most of the companies that we um, invest in everything obviously don't have books about them. Uh, but there might be books about the industry and about other, um, uh, companies in it that are close to them. Uh, so, you know, histories of the industry, but particularly histories of specific companies are the best thing to do. So even if it's things that are, you know, that you're looking to invest in arc restaurants or Flanagan's or whatever, um, reading about other, trying to find any other companies, um, that are in the restaurant business and everything is helpful for that. Sure. Um, and that's true. Uh, you know, there were books written on DreamWorks, uh, as a company overall, not DreamWorks animation specifically. Uh, but DreamWorks animation was a public company. And so you could read those, but you could also just read about movie studios in general. Um, the ones that are really interesting to me are ones like Ski Inc, obviously, because there actually isn't that much written about the industry from a business perspective. I think I mentioned with the cruise lines, you know, there's some stuff about it in um about sort of cruising and stuff like that but there from a business perspective there's probably only like two good books on that entire industry um that i can think of uh and it's a, you know it's a big industry so th- there's some surprising gaps that way you know, um, the movie theater business, for the most part, you get it through reading books about other people who were involved in it for a while. Uh, you know, um, in Beating the Odds, the company that became ABC that bought that that network, uh, it wasn't called ABC at the time, but that bought that network, um, was actually involved in the um, movie theater business uh, you know, Viacom, Sumner Redstone was um, involved in the movie theater business, and so were some others. You uh, the read The Outsiders, one of the companies in there is in the movie theater business. But obviously, you know, you can read these annual reports and things about them today, and you don't have a lot of that background. Um, we've talked about theme parks before. There's lots of coverage, there's lots of write ups on Value Investors Club or anywhere else uh, about them and using data from the industry and stuff that is, as it is now. Um, but you need to read books and things to get an idea on what the industry was like before to get an idea of how mature it is now and how slow growth and everything versus what it was like a long time ago. Um, And sometimes you figure that out just because you're reading and you're like, well, that doesn't really make sense. It must've been very different before. You know, like the cruise industry was once a very rapidly growing industry because you can see the huge size that it's at. You can see that it wasn't started that long ago, really, when you think about how many decades ago. And yet it's this slow growth, whatever thing. Now it can really um, lead people to think that somehow the industry doesn't change over time. Um, One of the biggest things is people say, like, what's a good business or good industry? It changes over time. Um, As the industry matures, there's certain parts uh, in, in its history where it's a really better business than you might think. And then there are other parts where it's not as good. Um, You know, people will say like a newspaper is a great business or something. It wasn't. Throughout most of the history of newspapers, most newspapers were terrible businesses. It's that there was a period where there became dominant daily newspapers, one per city, and they became really successful. But you know, these things were founded often a very long time before then, didn't make a ton of money for their founders in a lot of cases. It was a much more competitive business and faster growing and everything, but it was during the period where Buffett was investing them and all that in the second half of the um, 1900s, which is when really, you know, they made a lot of money um, and even not particularly good ones um, as long as they got to be the top one or in a few cities, one of the top two. was a successful business that way. Right. And so it's true with all of these. And you can see that even like, that's one of the things I enjoy with beating the odds is because of how different the network TV business was, how different the movie theater business was, how different all those things were back then versus what they would become later. Um, so, and you get that from reading Buffett's shareholder letters and stuff, I think is 1990 letter or around then he talks about how the, um, maybe it was 91 i don't remember but he talks about how the the economics of the media industry haven't just been haven't just deteriorated because of a uh, economic downturn um but also because uh the economics of it have really changed and that's when he's talking about cable coming in and you know other things like that um so already he's talking about that in terms of newspapers and local tv stations and and network tv whereas people think of that as being the internet that's just why that happened. But already he's talking about how it used to be a great franchise and now it's just a good business. You know, it was once a franchise, something with a moat and everything, and now it's it's a better than average business, but it's not, you know, one of those sorts of things. It's not a Coca-Cola. It's not that kind of business anymore.
0: So more on Coca-Cola. Why do you think it took Buffett so long to invest in Coca-Cola, right? So we're just sort of talking about the life stage of an industry or companies where We've done so many podcasts on this before, but Buffett's typically interested where it's about slower, more predictable, dominant growth. There's a few main companies or players in the industry, uh, and it's much more about capital allocation and market share growth, right. Or maintaining your Mm -hmm. market share, I should say. So why do you think it took him so long? I mean, he read like what, 30 or 40 years of Coca-Cola annual reports. He lived next to an executive, um. Why do you think it took him so long to invest in Coca-Cola?
1: Well, one, it wasn't cheap. So that I think was part of it. Um, it had a history of being pretty expensive for much of that period. It was a nifty 50 type stock. Um, so the business did really well in the 10 to 15 years, 15 years really before he bought it, but the stock actually did not do that well. So that's part of it. Um, So I think it's one of these where like the the economics, uh, the the fundamentals were catching up to the stock price over that time. And so that definitely helps out. And so I can uh, relate to that because I've certainly seen things where I think, oh, this is a great business and it takes years and years to come down while the business is growing at 15 percent a year or whatever. And the stock is flat to down a little bit over many years before I realize, oh, this is a stock that, you know, we could buy now. Um, because i had thought of it as a really expensive growth type stock um it was the opposite of a value stock right even from the period of ben graham they're already thinking of it as a blue chip uh growthy um whatever type thing it's the absolute opposite of a value stock um as was like ge of that period and things like that so it's mentioned early on that way even i think in um uh beating the odds um there's something there about uh um, wait. Do I mean beating the odds? No, sorry. I meant um, I, I guess uh, no, I don't remember which one I meant. But anyway, uh, you know, so Coca Cola stock had already performed very well by the you know the middle of the 1900s. It was already something that was whatever. You could go back and find if it was a hundred bagger or whatever before then. Um, so it was a fairly flashy stock in a way. It was certainly, a very well known company that way. Um, it had owned a little Wrigley. And he'd owned Disney, um, because we know that from seeing things in the 60s. So, you know, he owned a little bit of consumer brand things. Uh, He did buy into food things, but those were very, very cheap when he bought into them. So Coke was really a different experience in terms of the price that he was willing to pay and everything like that, I think. Um, I mean, he was willing to pay it for things like Buffalo Evening News, pay a really high price, because he really understood the news business, right, the newspaper business. And he knew exactly what he was buying, and he was getting control in that case. Um, you know, maybe for a Geico or something. He didn't have to because he bought it when it was severely distressed. But, you know, would he pay a high price for that? Maybe because he really understood that. Coke, I don't know if he felt that he, you know, um, that was something that he had th- such great understanding that was in his circle of competence that it was something to pay a lot of money for without learning a lot about it. So I think, although we think of him today that way, I think... Probably it's from the time he bought C's till the time he bought Coke that really makes sense as the transition from it, right? So Coke as a stock is not doing that well. Coke as a business is doing well. He's owned C's long enough to really understand the value of a a consumer brand that way and raising prices and all that kind of stuff. And, And then, you know, there's a change in management basically. Um, that's doing some things that he likes in terms of um, getting rid of the diversifying that they'd done before. Because remember, they owned a movie studio, and they own a few other things too. Um, so, getting rid of that. So, I think a combination of all those things. But it, it's not as crazy as it sounds that, like, in those 15 years or something, he hadn't bought Coke um, before then. And then, then you think, yeah, he could have bought it from, you know, when he was buying American Express, he could have bought Coke. Um, you know, they're just in the sixties, he could have been doing it or whatever, but you know, it was an expensive stock for much of that period. And that wasn't originally the area he thought of himself as investing a lot in his consumer product stuff. I mean, he'd have success with Coke and Gillette, but that wasn't really, you know, and now we think of that as being so much a Buffett thing to do. Right. But like Mm -hmm. his whole history, most of the stocks he was buying were not things like that. And power failure. Would you
0: consider Jack Welch? a great ceo right after all this information oh, right. that's come out about the business it's interesting because he was you know put up on a pedestal even by like buffett and munger right they always mm-hmm. talked about how great he was i'd love to hear what their updated thoughts are on jack welch just because of the incredible amount of information that's come out about the company really since he's died
1: yeah i think uh, that he was a very good ceo um when I was trying to think before when you were asking me about um, Bob Iger, was Bob Iger a great CEO, right? I was thinking who would it be that would be listed there who wasn't a founder and everything. I could think of many that were founders or early on, but Jack Welch is someone who takes over long after the company um, had been around. Uh, I think, look, he actively managed earnings in an aggressive way and managed Wall Street's expectations and set up things that could be a problem later on that way. But I do think that it's really overstated the extent to which G's problems later on uh, and really failure and everything are a result of the situation that Welch left the company in. Yes, he grew the finance part of the business to a lot bigger part of it, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have a, a disaster Um, I mean, to some extent, I actually think that it's slightly overstated, both in the case of Greenberg at uh, AIG and Welch at GE, that they were responsible for the company's failures just because they, uh, bought and grew, you know, they, they, they really grew into a huge size, the units that eventually would cause the downfall, because I don't think they would have caused those problems had they been in charge at that time, um, the capital allocation of ML was particularly bad. Um, and also the, I mean, there's just other things. The stuff that GE's culture and what Jack Welch did with GE did create a bit of a problem in which because they were focused on earnings and managing earnings and everything, I think over time they end up putting more and more businesses and growing businesses where it's easy to to manage earnings. Um, both in the sense that they can consistently grow and everything and that you can rely on having a low cost of capital to make money on a spread and um, that you can manipulate the earnings basically even in things like the uh, jet engine business and stuff with the service contracts. Um, so even in things like medical and uh, aerospace and stuff, I think that um, that's part of it. And I think that's actually one of the reasons, it doesn't get into in this book, but I do believe that's one of the reasons why GE was really willing to sell Um, NBC uh, is because the media business that they owned is actually really difficult Uh, NBC and Universal and everything is all of that stuff that's now um, Comcast those sorts of businesses even if they branch out into other things are generally very difficult to um, manage earnings in they don't necessarily give you very consistent earnings though if you're diversified enough in it maybe they can But they also have earnings and cash flows that are really much closer to each other. So you can't kind of take something over and not value it on sort of a cash flow basis and have it instead on like an earnings basis. You know, there's nothing that you can do. I mean, there's one story in Power Failure that uh, is kind of funny in that they're talking about one of their... I guess it was one of their cable things that they owned. And they're saying to them, oh, well, for this quarter and stuff, could you maybe release this movie... Um, right after Christmas instead of right before, you know, right after the end of the year, after December instead of right before. Because the way, if you know how accounting works for movie and TV and stuff, is that it you have to match off revenues and exp- exp- expenses. So although you've put in all the cash into it, let's say you have a $100 million movie, you've put up all the cash up front, you actually haven't reported any of that as expense yet. Now, if you play the movie once on January 1st or whatever, you and you think it has no value at all after that, it's a flop, you have to report the entire expense immediately to match it up with the revenue. If you think the revenue is going to be smoothly going over five years, then you would report it the same way on the expense. Basically, you're giving it like it has a similar margin on it over time by matching off the proportion of the expense to the proportion of the revenue. So when you have a huge hit you get a profitable hit from that over time as it moves out. Or if you have something like the movie that that Disney just put out a uh, strange world, that thing, because the revenue goes away, you know, they model that the revenue is going to go away like almost instantly. It's a you know place for a few weeks in the movie theaters. And then we're not going to make any money on all the rights for it and stuff. They just have to take that expense like that. So this company that GE owns, they're saying, okay, so can you do it right after in January instead of, like a week before or whatever in December, because that helps us for the quarter. We need we you know we need a little bit more this quarter versus last quarter. Whereas sometimes in the reverse, they're like you know spend a you can take more expense this quarter, right? So they have to even out. So uh, the problem was it was a Christmas movie, so they said no, we can't play a Christmas movie in January. Uh, it's it's yeah. coming out for Christmas, um, but that's the kind of thing that they would do, right? So they uh-huh. would pull back in one unit. In terms of like can we pull forward some expenses and stuff so we look better in the future And so basically they call around the company and be like you know we've got a $10 million dollar hole or whatever where do we find that and how do we make that happen um, And so in the kind of idea of like good money uh, bad money you know pushing out crowding out the good money, I think over time bad businesses because G was also active in in how it managed its portfolio businesses, businesses that had particularly good cash flow characteristics versus particularly poor earnings ones, got pushed out of GE. And ones that had particularly good earnings versus particularly poor cash flows got kept because they were concerned with their earnings that they were reported. They had access to low-cost capital and they were willing to grow their balance sheet as much as it took. So all they cared about was earnings per share. And no one was saying, what's your free cash flow? What does it look like? And everything. So a business that actually to Comcast, who probably manages their business, uh, they do now. I mean, when they were early on, they didn't necessarily, but they, they did embrace sort of the um, John Malone type approach to cable companies and stuff. So for a cable company buying something that has that kind of cash flow and everything, they're just looking at what's the EBITDA, what can we get out of it and all of that. They're not worried about what are we going to report in earnings. Um, and so they got rid of some things that actually would have had plenty of cash flows and stuff into things that were all about the earnings per share. And so that's part of the thing with the financial situation that they got themselves into. And it is something that is similar both with AIG and... And with GE, and I do blame them for creating in each of those cases, the star CEOs for creating the, um, circumstances that would happen later. And especially the culture that would happen later too. Um, but to some extent, I think that Jack Welch set up the situation in which a not very good CEO could do some real damage. I don't know that if he was the person who was always in there, that that would necessarily be a problem. Uh, but mean like as it relates to like manufacturing earnings and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, like the constant need for like needing to beat the street what is the
1: wall street expecting beat those expectations keep the dividend yeah now the thing that jeff animal couldn't have done anything about and that jack welch gets too much credit for is that gu stock was just really incredibly highly priced at that moment Mm -hmm. so from a stock perspective things did not go well but honestly from a, a corporate performance perspective it also didn't do that well um and you know, the financial crisis was actually, I mean, Jeff Elma took off, uh, he took over the company basically September, uh, basically around September 11th of 2001. You know, that's the easiest way to date. It, it was right around then. So there's actually several years until the financial crisis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and likewise, there the um, energy, a huge decline in energy you know, in the U S that happens later too, is like a dozen years into his tenure. Right. So it's like half a dozen years or something until the financial crisis. It's like a dozen years until energy turns down, they have bought a big energy thing. Um, you know, those are decisions that they made as a company, um, that were not necessarily that smart. And they took a lot of the worst things of the Welch era and didn't have a lot of other ones that were better. Um, But overall, GE was definitely run throughout as the anti outsiders type company. If you like read the book, The Outsiders, this is the reverse of that. If all you worried about was reporting good earnings, you didn't care about the cash flows and all of that. Um, And there's a lot of things about how the accounting works and how you manage to those numbers that's a problem. And I've also talked about that. um, You know, so because of if a number becomes something that you manage towards, then it's not as reliable as an indicator for outsiders you're managing that so like eps became not that useful in understanding ge um likewise the company's like culture of in terms of its management i think they they were not um they didn't have a great understanding of cash flow stuff because it's not how they ran the business whereas like teledyne did so there's a poor understanding of cash flow and a poor understanding of return on capital of what capital costs um and that was something that I started under Jack Welch and continued with um, others G, Although even before then, they they weren't particularly... I mean, all business was run very much towards earnings per share stuff, big giant corporations like GE, and not worrying a lot about um, returns on capital and certainly cash flows in the earlier days. But G was run very conservatively um, financially. Uh, then with Welch, they became a lot less conservative financially. And so Welch did inherit... A very strong financial position and caused that financial position to deteriorate you know GE shouldn't have really been a triple a rated company um when he left so that part is true but you know every lbo and every um and most of the outsiders with the exception of a few did the same thing right they started with a company which was nor- somewhat normal finances and brought it down to like a junk bond type company or whatever and focused on return on capital, especially on cash basis, you know, the cash flows and all that. But they focused on getting the equity performance to be as strong as possible and acted like owners. But they didn't focus on having it this rock solid financial situation except for um, Buffett. And um, they also talk about Washington Post there with, with K. Graham, but that's because Buffett's really having a huge influence there. Do you think this whole idea
0: of like worried about being worried about future earnings and communicating your company to analysts and Wall Street and quote unquote, beating the street? I mean, do you think most companies, I mean, take Buffett out of this mold, most companies kind of operate that way and worry about those sorts of things, kind of like the whole, you know, Buffett quote of you get the shareholders you deserve. Would you say most companies kind of fall in this same bucket as GE?
1: Yes, but I have to say since i lived through it and, and you did not really it was so much worse in 2000 that's what people don't understand about enron and ge and all of these that were the, at that time and that were a lot of the sarbanes oxley stuff after that uh tyco whatever this is what all companies uh big size did there it was a complete focus for them um obviously they changed some things about disclosures and what could be given to analysts in, instead of others um but basically, you know, there were whisper numbers and there was guiding to certain consensus there. They didn't have to, no one had to pre-report that, oh, we're going to have a bad time like Snap and stuff does now because they could get all the analysts on board to guide them to the right numbers before then. Um, but yeah, it was an obsession with everybody um, <laughs> about the earnings per share thing. about the, um, And there was a ton of value to that in in people's eyes of the consistently growing Um, best businesses, the higher returns on that. I mean, GE was very, very famous around 2000 or so. And it was it's amazing because it was very famous as a successful business and everything at a time when it was the exact opposite of all the tech companies and the new things. And so this was an old um, company that was not in any of those businesses. Even the things that it was in that were high tech were things that were decades old, those industries. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was, you know, it was because of that of the consistent earnings results and all that. Um, and it was like the nifty 50 type period. you know, it was a similar sort of mania that caught on and I think people forget that they remember it as like the pets.com and stuff like that that was the what happened then. But there was this blue chip boom that happened too and a lot of the wealth that people lost in the, Downturn of the 2000 uh, bubble bursting and everything was not just tech stuff. Although some of that were really bad, um, mm-hmm. you know, we've talked about like Cisco or whatever, like that got to a price that could never be overtaken, no matter how well the company was run. From that point on, it was just you would never get back to the, that stock price and stuff. Uh, it would never be a good performer. Uh, Microsoft was bad, but it wasn't as bad as Cisco in terms of the valuation. And so it was, you know, but it still lost a decade or whatever we looked into in terms of the stock price of, you know, not uh, taking over a decade to turn around. Um, so, yeah, it was just that period that was unusual that way. I mean, you saw the, the only thing that's similar to that, you know, there was a housing mania that you saw in um, and everyone's right about and stuff now in the um, housing boom and like learned about after that, what that was like and how strange that was. And you saw that um, in the the, you know, the Tina or whatever you want to call it, the FOMO, the, um, that morphed into a few different things in terms of what's been crypto and SPACs and, um, certain completely profitless tech type things that are basically like pre-revenue or startups that ha- have not clear how they're going to commercialize and all of that over the last few years, which I really just started in the last years before COVID, the first signs of it, and then happened, you know, with COVID, um. And that's common with all these, that you get a bunch of little bubbles and different things, even with the nifty 50 things and all that. When you look at the history, there's these little bubbles of different things and like some of the more speculative things that bubble pops and then another bubble pops up. That's even different. So it's not it's one of these really interesting things because like 2000 um, interest rates were not that low. Um, So, you know the bond yields were actually pretty much per i think they were in line with totally what they'd normally been for a long time at that point they weren't considered particularly low short term money wasn't definitely wasn't low at all um and then tech stuff okay if you believe the internet was going to come the biggest thing ever that makes sense with cisco right selling you know basically the the sort of um switches or sort of the the infrastructure of what the industry was going to need and everything and a couple other ones but why is ge priced so high or you know there's others there's there's so many of them even you know coke and gillette got to prices where buffett said that they're overpriced um and that bubble is not the same thing it's just something psychologically that's happening with people that's interesting because it's not just logically making sense um but in people justify it but now you know people have talked about the until the, it rates went up recently right they talked about the net present value stuff so it's the discount rate well the discount rate wasn't that low back then So, okay, so it was all about the internet and that growing fast. That makes sense to a certain point, but then it was all these companies that actually weren't even that involved in the internet. Um, And so you come up with different ways to justify it, but it, I mean, what it honestly was is that after, you know, rates peaked in like 81, I guess, or around then 82, the stock market starts taking off basically. And it continues to take off for like 17 years, basically. You know, there was a crash in there and everything that was momentary. But at the end of that, you still keep feeling positive about things. And there keep being things that kind of develop out of that. And you have a memory of it being so positive for so long. Um, and, you know, so it was a very, very strange period that way. And that that's something that probably power failure could have done a better job of explaining, though it did a little bit of a job explaining it, that people don't realize that of what's changed between like now and then, like more recently in the last few years, being in the right thematic category—that's the thing that's been hot. So it's sort of like the uranium stock craze that happened, you know, 50 years ago or you know, 70 years ago, or whatever. Now, um, that sort of thing—that uh, was not what was really the huge thing 20 years ago. It was actually um, these stocks. It was a few leaders, these big name stocks. Uh, that everyone was crazy about and some of them were internet stocks and some of them were just big leaders in their field and whatever it reminds me more of like when they talk about what well, the stock they called radio but it was rca um back in the 20s and stuff uh, when it was a hot growth stock and everything but it was also considered a well-run stock and just a popular leading stock and everyone looked at it and and um there was a, a you know that's what everyone traded that's what everyone talked about so and it's also hard to understand when i say things about like activision or whatever why weren't people why wasn't that stock bit up to the moon? You would think that with internet and video games growing so fast and everything, that would be a crazy thing. It wasn't big enough. It wasn't a leading thing. It wasn't well known enough. You know? Uh, it was an interesting period that way. You know, there you know, and all the magazines or whatever will put certain stocks on the cover of it. And it's hard to remember that too, that there was a time when being on the front of, you know, Forbes or Fortune or whatever and having articles in it, barons and all that, was really important to um, the level of interest of people in your stock, you know, institutional interest and all that. And then analyst covering and then getting out to people generally. Um, and that was, what it was all about instead of, you know, Reddit or whatever. Right. Um, but it was, and he was a celebrity and Emma was a celebrity, even though he, you know, never did a particularly good job at all. Was he a celebrity though, just based
0: on Jack Welch's shadow, right? He sort of inherited yeah. that celebrity.
1: Yeah. And he was, which obviously very, he
0: cared a lot about.
1: Yeah. And he was a very good person to have on interviews and things. It was a giant company it covers the kinds of things that people interviewing people want to hear more about, which is the more macro type things, not the details. He didn't seem like he was a very details person in an interview that I saw with him, um, but he was a big very big picture person, which is, that's always what they're interested in and what they can talk about, uh, to have you on something. So just a, a kind of ambassador for corporate America or whatever, you know, mm-hmm yeah
0: i will say the names the titles of these books are just incredible power failure lights out i mean it just seems like there's just so much material there because of the situation right like they're kind of going with that theme yeah absolutely yep so getting back to uh reading books being a huge part of your investment process i mean to really add some context around that if you had to guess how many books do you think you read per week on average
1: Uh, only two and a half or so I'd say, I mean, I, I say that I read a book every three days. That's not really exactly true. I'd say more that I'd never go three full days without having finished a book. So Mm. some books I read in a day, some two days or whatever, but I, I can't really remember times unless I'm doing something unusual, you know, where I just don't have any time to read. Um, yeah, basically, you know, I always finish a book within three days. I'm onto a new book. Yeah, I don't think people understand. I mean, like your quote unquote
0: default boredom, right? Like your default mode that you go to when you're not actively doing something is pulling out your Kindle and reading.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I have things set up to be able to do that. I mean, right now I've got a, a heater on my back patio and stuff, the propane heater and stuff, so that I can still be out there reading and getting time and doing that, Uh, even though it's, you know, December or whatever. Now it helps that it's Texas, but we still do have some bit of winter here where you can't be out at all hours and stuff. Um so, you're a big porch guy. You like to sit outside and read. Mm-hmm, yeah. And uh, and I do. I have a, a bag that I bring around with me everywhere that has uh, a, a, usually at least the book I'm reading now and then a backup book, right? So you don't really need more than that usually. You, know? like you can have your Kindle and, and take it out anywhere when you're on planes and things, and maybe it might be a big thing. But usually if you have a book and a backup book with you everywhere, that's what I take out. And I don't have a phone, so in the place if you imagine all the times people would use a phone take out a phone cuz they're waiting for something whatever i'm reading a book if you replaced all the time you take on a phone with reading you'd probably finish a book every 3 days at the most um i think that's true for most everyone you know i don't know estimates of how much time people spend um you know on their them. phone each day but you know <laughs> historically like you know um certainly like say a decade ago or something people were spending f- four and a half, five hours a day watching TV, you know, before phones, smartphones got big. So if much of that's gone to smartphones and stuff, I mean, you replace that with reading. Kindle estimates how long it'll take you to read a book. There's not a lot of books that are going to take you more than 15 hours or something to read. So a few days, yeah. Um, My biggest thing is getting enough material of the kind that I like. So uh, like, for instance, power failure and stuff, I have to read these reviews to kind of figure out is this really just like a hit job is this really something that they don't have any access to the company is it going to be all about like oh uh, am i going to get like more of a social history or a history about um they're trying to tie into some bigger idea that they have about capitalism socialism environmentalism politics whatever um because the publisher's always going to pick a name that is going to get people in there and a cover and it's going to sound more confrontational and uh you know, whatever about either glorifying something more than the book really does or whatever. And so some of them, you know, you think this is not gonna be good at all. I mean, not like, uh, uh, what's it? devil on the blue seas or whatever devil, yeah. um, the, is actually a much better book, a cruise, the, the cruise book than you would think. Cause you think it's only going to be about like them dumping, um, uh, them dumping waste directly into the ocean and, you know, different scandals and, you know, union relations and whatever things that they're famous for. Um, but on the Deep Blue Sea. Devils on the Deep Blue Sea. Yeah. It's yeah. actually, uh you know, a much better book that way. And I, then I read another one that was from someone who was in marketing and that and whatever. But you get a few different okay. ones. And uh, Devils on the Deep Blue Sea. Yep. Yeah. So... But, of course, that book is published. What it's saying is published is right before everything changed in the cruise industry because you have the bursting of the financial bubble and everything. And since then, it's gone to a super slow growth industry. Um, But, yeah, and Selling this, yeah, I read that one too. And, uh, yeah, those two books together is pretty good to understand the cruise industry, I think. Yeah. Um, But from the titles, you don't always know what's going to be a good book that way. Uh, the 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 Great Texas Banking Crash, for instance, Um, I did not like that much because it was just a book about one person's bad experience with the FDIC, basically. So it does not cover what happened to the bank that caused it to get into that situation when he was running it, the president of uh, that bank. And it really just deals with the time from when he said, um, I'm going to... Uh, when they said to the FDIC that they wanted to do a rescue plan that would have cut the bank open. And then to the point where all those things go wrong, all the miscommunications, all the politics, all the infighting, whatever, and then the bank fails, right? So most of it is just complaining about the FDIC's handling of this particular situation or thing. Maybe it would make a great magazine article or something of that time. If it came out at the time that the Texas things were happening and maybe, you know, it'd be really interesting to people also when, those personalities are involved in everything, um, but it gives like no information of the lead up to what caused it. Um, there's very little information of you know even about particularly the bank that he was running, and so it's interesting. I mean, some of the personalities I recognize and everything. So some of the people it goes to, to as investors, I recognize the names of and have read about them in other books and stuff. So it's interesting from that perspective. Um, but it's definitely one that I'd say everyone else should skip and you don't always know that reading about it ahead of time. It's Ski Ink. This is the book that you think I would like the best. You would like it. Yeah. I don't know if you'd like it the best, but I think you will like it. People who don't have any interest in skiing stuff at all, I don't know that they'll like it. Um, cuz it's not super heavy as a business thing. You know, it's 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 not someone talking about it who's an investor or something who knows a lot about businesses outside of skiing. So mm-hmm. it's very focused on that particular thing. But yeah, I think that you will like it. Yeah. Is uh Owning a ski resort, a great business, uh, mixed. It's a lot. We've talked about this with the theme parks and things like that. So it's mixed. They require a certain amount of investment in them and improving them over time and all of that. And so there's certain strategies that you can have that are not such good strategies and certain ways that you can run them that, um, but for the most part does like theme parks and stuff, as long as they're getting some of the reinvestment they need and everything in them, does it really matter who owns them? Like they maintain their value as properties and stuff after that. Yeah, they're sort of you know assets that once profitable, do tend to still be successful later, no matter who's owning it. But even the things we ta- I talked about with the um, book about ABC and stuff. You know, ABC and NBC and, and CBS have gone through different owners and everything, but hasn't. You know, it really hasn't mattered to them. You know, Mm -hmm. um, GE didn't work any magic on NBC to make it any better, or any worse. And they sold off to Comcast and change it the other way, you know? Uh, Um, so the economics of it and stuff mainly stay the same. So yeah, if it gets enough reinvestment in it and everything, um, yeah. And we talked, I mean, we talked about six flags, which went through, you know, disastrous times financially and everything, but we still talked about as a stock that could be attractive. There's nothing wrong with the parks and stuff, as long as they put enough money back into it. Um, but there are some examples they give in there where you know they really didn't put enough money into it or whatever. Um, but it's not like a real data-heavy book. Um, but it, it's it's really short and stuff. But it is a completely business focus. It's not like gossipy or anything about the behind-the-scenes of the ski resorts or anything. It is really about the business of running a ski resort, and you get a real understanding of that about like you know how many beds there are in the area to, for people to stay over um, to building the base for the. Resort, what it takes in terms of, you know, the little um, ski village that you have of retail and stuff and how much that brings in for them, how much condo sales, you know, are important. Uh, ski lifts to move people, how long it takes to move them, how, you know, all that kind of stuff. Pre-sales of uh, season passes versus things that are all day, things that people are doing. And, you know, so it gets into like, you figure out, oh, this is how they make their money and everything. And this are the difficult things I didn't think about too of the logistics of it. Because ski resorts are, like I've said about, you know, Disney's best skill, right? With if you go to the Disney parks and stuff, the thing where they excel beyond any of the other theme park operators is moving people around. And ski resorts are, do have that aspect to them too, that it's a big part of moving people around. A bunch of people come at the same time and want to get up um, and making them wait a bunch of time and not maximizing the time that they're actually spending money and all that kind of things, it, you know, is an issue. And they talk about sometimes in it where they have like, here's how long the wait was from them to doing this. Here's much of how much actual skiing they're able to get into whatever. So like reasons why one is more attractive than another and why you have to invest in these lifts and all that kind of stuff. So it's stuff you might not think necessarily about. Um, so it gives you a good idea of like someone actually running it, but it's kind of like if there's a theme park book, that's about someone who runs the theme parks. It is not from an investor perspective and stuff like that, I'd say. And which books do you prefer
0: at this point? It's just much more about like operators, not from like the actual perspective of being
1: an investor. Well, the one I preferred the most that way is um, beating the odds because it's someone who's basically running the company. Now, he owned fairly little stock in the company, a- and so he was subject to you know different raiders being able to try to take it over because it was a public company that whole time. But basically someone who's the CEO for that time is the one I would like the most. But I say that, and yet I haven't read Hot Seat by Jeff Almont, so which may be why I'm somewhat unfair to him in my assessment <laughs> of that thing you know of that period um but that's the one i haven't read of the ge books wait and that's actually written by jeff jeff ml hot seat yeah i wonder how honest of an account that'll I, be i believe more people uh where is it uh yeah so i that's think that's pretty long yeah. three hundred and fifty two pages got a lot of uh, a lot of reviews so I, I i believe a lot more people have probably <laughs> read that at this point than uh, power failure i love it one star blinded by his own ego yeah yeah. Interesting. And yeah. So, uh, it's hard to go on the reviews for books, you know, because these sorts of things, like I say, they could be somewhat controversial or whatever. So some, you have to read why they're complaining about it or whatever, if it's their views about it. Um, you know, and that backs up the things that would be your concern reading it is like, Oh, I'm going to get, uh, you know, the insider ones are tough because they are usually written as some sort of apology them that way and and sometimes you read it and it's like they just didn't like this person you know so you get a lot of that yeah i've never read the the one that eisner wrote which was actually at his time at disney like at that time i know that it's i've not read that one but i know that was very like um not revealing you know because he wasn't done mm. with yeah so you you really can't have that usually where someone um writes a very honest appraisal, really candid appraisal of their time there when they're still there or something, you're still connected to it, you know?
0: Yeah, that's the hard part too, right? Like you think about Buffett and he basically casted or asked um, Alice Schroeder to write his book. And he basically said like, whenever you come across something that's less flattering than I remember, uh, choose a less flattering one, right? I feel like it'd be very hard to, and just knowing like from these other books that you've read about the CEO, Jeff Melt, I feel like it'd be kind of tough to Take everything without a
1: grain of salt. But I mean, maybe that's not fair on my part, right? I don't know. But it also can be true for all the other books too, you know. Um, the guy who wrote uh power failure mentions, you know, that he was a I don't know if he was the roommate, but he certainly knew the person who took over at GE after ML and then was replaced quickly by uh fairly quickly by was it, Larry Colp um, from Danaher. And um Is that right? Yeah, I think that's what I'm saying is right. Um, So, you know, he he talks about him and obviously maybe had more of um, an axe to grind that way or whatever, more familiarity that way with him. And so that may have caused him to um, be more biased against Immelt and be more biased about um, the CEO of G who took over after him, um, both, you know? Mm -hmm. Sometimes that's why people you know, write these things. And they also just have biases in lots of other different ways. Um, I'd say the way that G uh, capital was written about here was a bit different than it was in lights out. And I attributed that to the more, the greater financial background of the author in this one. Um, So the way that he handled that and talked about it. Um, I'm currently reading the book power play, which is
0: about Elon Musk and it's Tesla and Elon Musk and the bed of the century. And it's so interesting reading books that they go through like different periods of, you know, the company or whatever. And I'm at the point of like 2016, 2017, when Elon was, you know, tweeting certain things, or he talked about buying the company for $420 per share. Um, and then, you know, after that whole thing happened, then, you know, he needed a, uh and the uh what was it the thailand like children that got stuck in the cave and he called the cave guy whatever he called them and he needed like some sort of good pr so he goes on joe rogan but then he smokes weed on joe rogan it's interesting hearing almost like an inside of count from their perspective because obviously i just remember that time as an outsider, right. basically just you know listening and seeing all this information on Twitter and people talking about it and reading about it in the financial news. So I like reading books where I remember exactly, well, maybe not exactly, but I generally remember like what I was doing, what I was thinking. I remember mm. it playing out and then hearing the other side of the story. I mean, who knows how accurate it is, right? Because it's not like Elon right. actually wrote it. And even if he did, maybe the, the truth would be somewhere in between. But I love books like that where I just remember where I was, what I was thinking, and just hearing the other side of it.
1: Yeah, and there's a reappraisal a lot of times over time. Um, so it's interesting to read books that were written at that have a certain endpoint, you know, so that they're not, you know, up to today or whatever, too. Because that also biases it a lot in terms of you're looking at what eventually happened versus other you I mean the jack welch period people would be a lot more favorable if it wasn't followed with jeff Elmell. so you know that they know that g is going to go down after that i've read a couple books i mean the ebay book i mentioned that are written in the very very early 2000s and they often include a bit of a section where they say why was ebay so successful and amazon a failure because amazon <laughs> stock had crashed by then ebay held up incredibly well ebay was making money amazon yeah. was losing money amazon's credit situation wasn't terrific um and ebay was this company that had more money than it needed and producing all this free cash flow and like very the one of the companies that held up a lot better than anything else and they both were seen as marketplaces for the internet that way and the idea was the model of ebay who succeeded the model of uh, amazon failed and then years if it was you know let's say 15 years on or even almost 10 years on after that people would talk about how how if Amazon was so successful, so successful? Why wasn't the other company that was from around that time that was a big success? Why did it never go on to be like an Amazon, um, mm-hmm. eBay? You know, so they would now they look at it the other way and say, well, how did that happen? I mean, eBay had all yeah. these advantages over it and didn't succeed um, to become as big as Amazon. Of course, eBay still succeeded in a tremendous way, but now that there were ones that came to become even much bigger, it's like, well, how did you not become a Fang uh, type company? How did you not become one of the biggest companies in the world? You know um yeah it's funny though how like when
0: you read something that was from the past for example like in power play elon really did not want to be public with tesla because he didn't like the fact of you know having to do the whole guidance thing and talk to analysts and basically the fact that you know they may not like something and and can completely like you know punish your stock or perhaps you in his point of view oh we're investing for the future but then at some point you know wall street wants you to turn, turn a profit and you know him Faking or whatever you want to call it the 420 buyout or whatever Mm. right there was some truth in there and there was a lot of truth in there that he really wanted to be private and then you know figured out that that wasn't going to happen but you know fast forward to today i mean the reason he's the richest person in the world and one can argue perhaps even the ceo of twitter now is because Mm. of the fact that they're public and they we just went through like a huge you know speculative mania and the whole reflexivity thing and they've been able to take advantage of being public and use their stock as currency, and now he's the owner of Twitter. Because I mean, throw like a Ford or a, a you know different car manufacturer, multiple on Tesla, or maybe what it would be valued in the private markets. Maybe he wouldn't be the richest person in the world. You know, so it's just interesting how those things kind of can shift over time. And just reading about uh, the past, you know, what his thoughts were, assuming this is true, um, which I I think is probably true. He didn't want to be public. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but that actually turned out to be one of the reasons that, uh, you know, he's the richest person in the world currently, and he's really benefited from being public. Yeah. So because we are at the end of 2022, Mm -hmm. it's the point of reflection, typically towards the end of the year, people think about things they did over the past year, or over the year. Um, What's your favorite book, since we're talking a lot about Reading, right? What's your favorite book that you read in two thousand twenty two?
1: Um My personal favorite was probably Meckelheny's Um Gold, which is about the Tabasco company. So um How do you spell that? M C I could get the book. McElvenny? Never heard of it. MC I-L-H-E-N-N-Y. There we go. Tabasco. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So I've never heard of this And this is not a very favorable book towards the family. Okay. And is also not, um, I don't know how accurate it is in some ways. For instance, I believe it speculates on some things where I wouldn't be comfortable speculating that much, especially during the very early period around the, civil war basically and stuff. Um I think some of, there's some truth to some of the things it says, but I you know, but the company's official history and stuff is not correct. Um, but I think the kind of alternate history it gives for it might not be exactly correct either. I think we'll never know exactly what happened there of like how they came up with the the um Tabasco sauce in the first place. But um yeah, so it's a basically a book about Tabasco sauce about the company. So if you've seen Tabasco, you know what you think of of Tabasco. um, It is basically this one company uh, that grew it into a few hundred million dollar a year in sales. Um, It claims the the book claims that they had a 20% profit margin when they had a few hundred million in sales already then. And it never, uh, you know, they didn't sell out at that point where the book ends and stuff. So um, for a family business, obviously making a ton of money that way. However, they did, um, not keep it close in the sense that they uh, allowed people to inherit equally over time. So this is the problem that you have with all these companies. I talked about this with John Wiley, which was able to stay family owned all those years and people wonder how's that possible? Uh, like a lot of, you know, royal lines or, or noble lines or whatever, the key is to have, you know, a firstborn male heir, but not a lot of them. And so they had very few. So they had a direct line of very, very few um, children, basically over time, as compared to lots of other companies uh, would end up with. So you know, this ends up with like a hundred family shareholders or something, you know, because if you found something in uh, right after the Civil War, fast forward one hundred fifty years, you are going to have descendants that you intended to be one person inheriting it that's now a hundred and some. you know sort of like what happened with the wall street journal um with the bancroft family and all that so that's you know common you only see that with like the socks wearing and stuff with naco you know over time and that's a company that only is existed for only about half the time that this company had you know
0: mm-hmm. no it's so interesting i love uh business books i'm just looking through some of my book's read from 2022, uh, let's see, Losing the Signal, can't believe that, right? I feel like that mm-hmm. was forever ago and that we talked about that on the podcast. Um, trillion Dollar Triage was interesting, right? An inside account of the Fed after Steve, I really liked just because it was more so about like the operations of Apple with Tim Cook. And I, I honestly, I thought it was a great account of, you know, we always talk about market power, and you've written about how companies don't steal, uh, profits from competitors. Companies steal profits from suppliers and customers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's a great example of Apple's market power and how they really squeeze their suppliers. Uh, so from like an operations perspective, I thought it was a very interesting book, um, keeping at it was interesting, uh, Let's see, what else we got here? Bitter Brew, that was a
1: great business book. Right, I read Bitter Brew this year too, yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it was a good business book. It's a lot about a very dysfunctional family though. A lot of it is- Very dysfunctional, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah, no, so I love books that are like that. Um, But anyway, so we could go back to focus compounding. One mm-hmm. thing that you did add in these blog posts, which people listening, Uh, You could click this Ask Jeff link right there and you uh, will uh, be able to send him an email. He said, if you have any topics you'd like me to blog about, click the link below and let me know. So did you get any emails yet?
1: Uh, I've gotten some emails and I have some ideas for blog posts anyway. And I actually have one written that didn't go up up yet. Okay, Uh, there you go.
0: There you go. So go to focuscompounding.com to get access to those future blog posts all for free. So we are kind of close to the end of the podcast, so we're not going to go too much into uh, the topic. Uh, we will reserve that for next week, um, but we could just hit on you know the current market where we are and some things that have happened uh, that I guess one would consider material just based on uh, you know the markets or whatever. SP 500 we're down 60 percent year to date. All this pretty much is kind of still the same from last time that we recorded. Uh, The major news that came out was about inflation. Uh, Consumer prices rose last month at the slowest 12-month pace since December 2021. Uh, CPI climbed 7.1% in November from a year ago, uh, which was down from 7.7% in October. Core CPI, which excludes energy and food, uh, the volatileness of energy and food, rose 6% in November from a year ago, uh, which is down from 6.3%. In October, uh, the CPI increased 0.1 percent November from the prior month, compared with 0.4 percent in October. Core CPI rose 0.2 percent November, down from uh, rising 0.3 percent in October and 0.6 percent in August and September. So, from that, inflation is starting to, I guess you could say sort of level off to come down a little bit jeff Mm -hmm. i mean i mean the market took that as a very great sign but it's crazy when you think about the fact that inflation is still growing call it seven percent you know or inflation is still seven percent um over year over year that's a pretty high inflation rate and then today uh it was the fed wednesday the fed came out and they raised the fed funds by 0.50 percent 50 basis points um and signaled a plan to keep raising rates in the next few meetings um uh, probably i would imagine another 50 basis points but down from uh four consecutive increases of 75 bips so the 50 basis point basically they raised less they still raised but it was less than what it's been over the past four meetings uh current fed funds benchmark rate range four and a quarter to 4.50 percent uh the one thing that i guess you could say surprised market was the dot plot Uh, Mm -hmm. Most officials plan to raise rates between 5% and 5.5% next year with the median projection implying a further 75 basis point uh, rate hike. And in September, they anticipated only lifting it to around 4.6% by the end of next year. So higher rates for longer. And, um, you know, that happened today. And it seems like... uh, you know it's crazy to think that you know rates have gone from nothing to you know four and a quarter to four and a and a half, mm-hmm. and they're going to get to five to five and a half. And it seems like the market really just isn't pricing any of that in further. It seems like the market thinks that the Fed is going to actually have to cut interest rates, um, because that you know we're going to price ourselves into a recession. And did you read? Uh, Howard Marks' new memo, Jeff? Sea change?
1: Yes. Sea change, Yep.
0: So, what I thought was interesting about that was he talks about, um, let's see, can you see my screen? Yes. He talks about, he only remembers two real sea changes uh, in his career, Mm -hmm. and he thinks that we're going through a third one today. And he talks about the Nifty Fifty era when he started out in the business. And the first sea change was the evolution of the high yield junk bond market and um, sort of the widespread adoption of investing in uh, securities or bonds that were not just like completely A rated uh, or or known as, as being safe investments. There was a level which you can invest in these quote-unquote less risky investments as long as you were compensated for the risk you were taking he says the U.S. high yield bond market or bond universe amounted to about 2 billion when I first got involved and today it stands at roughly 1.2 trillion that was the first sea change Uh, the second main sea change in his career was uh, 40 years of declining interest rates from when Volcker took interest rates up to 20 percent to slow inflation that left you know a very long period of uh declining interest rates uh, which you know all incentives behind that it prompted investors to take more risk markets only went up you know we created this this spack boom or this uh bubble over the past couple of years that was really on the bedrock of of liquidity um and then he talks about how you know he thinks the third sea change is going to be really transitioning back to what he called a um a full return world is what he called it a full return world where it's not just all about investing in stocks basically to earn any sort of return um bonds you know that were yielding four to five percent last year are today are yielding about eight percent which you know could be close to equity like returns so I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on this, uh, sea change, if you agree with him and, you know, as individuals that don't just invest on autopilot and we are strategic and careful about the price that we're willing to pay, do you agree with him? And do you think the future, if he's
1: correct, will be better for value investors? Uh, it might be relatively better for value investors than versus, um, growth, uh, you know. I think, I mean, the period that we're talking about, uh, really before his career starts, was a good one for. uh, Well, from the time his career starts, I should say, till rates started falling. Let's use that. So his career started in nineteen sixty nine, Howard Marks, and then um, rates are really falling in the beginning. You know, at whatever the eighty one or eighty two or something like that. So um, that period was the seventies, basically. And that's high inflation and um, weak and more unstable than anything, Um, you know, growth in the economy. You have several recessions in that period. Um, That was good, very good for value investing versus growth investing. It was really bad for the nifty 50. As he said, if you bought the nifty 50 and held from 1969 till 1974, you lost uh, 90% of your money. Um, so that was obviously, that's the Peter Cundell period where all his, you know, outperformance and everything happens really there in the seventies. Um, it was a great time for a lot of the things we talked about with Warren Buffett. He buys the Washington post early in the seventies. Um, so that period is really strong for kind of who we think of as the best value investors. Right. And it was not a good period for growth investing. Um, the reverse has been true since shortly after the financial crisis. Um, uh, the first couple of years were okay for value investing, but basically the last 10 years until um, rates started rising, uh, which was, you know only basically expectations for rates and all that really happened maybe 15 months ago, let's say. It was about the last three months of last year till now is when there was really the change in terms of expectations about rates from people investing in stocks and stuff. Let's at least say that. So like the, the arc, uh, type of tech stocks and things. Yeah. That, that kind of stuff started to, uh, really fall apart in the last, in the near the end of last year is when they were showing large losses and stuff. Um, and value probably started outperforming at some point, you know, last year, um, And, uh, you know, since then, I mean, there, you know, um, I guess it's dependent on how much weighted you are to like energy and financials and things like that. Some value things are a lot more weighted to that than than growth. Um, Some of those have done better. You know, energy has certainly and financials last year did. okay. Um, so it's sort of. Yeah, I mean, it's possible that we've seen that. I mean, certainly in rates, you've seen a complete change. Yeah. But the market doesn't necessarily expect that. And I think he talks a little about that. If you look at the market, the market's kind of expecting rates to come back down fairly quickly. Um, so, I i mean, I think I share Howard Marx's biases or are even more biased. And so that's why I have to be kind of careful here. Certainly, I'm more biased in wanting to see uh, attractive investment opportunities. And we tend to invest in the, you know, kinds of. Uh, to To invest along the sort of same kinds of principles as like what he's talking about with oak tree, uh, we invest in different things, but we do prefer to invest in things where a um, you know a whether you uh, want to call it um, you don't it's have calico like perfect yeah. example, right? You don't you have a margin of safety and you don't have to make particularly aggressive assumptions. You can make assumptions that are in the you pay attention to that the half of the distribution of possible future outcomes has to still be uh, in things that, you know, I have a way of making money in this, right? It can't all be the best case scenario is the one that um, makes me money, right? So we tend to be more conservative in our estimates of what the future will be. Tend to be more conservative in estimates of what the multiple expansion stuff will be, right? So like when I have bought stocks, if you look at kind of what I've estimated the return in stocks should be, that I bought over time, what I'd expect to make versus uh, what I have made. There's a significant gap. I don't know. Let's say seven or more percentage, at least seven, over 7% a year. That is explained only by multiples expanding in what I own more than I expected, right? So actual realized returns end up being a lot higher. And he's talked about why that is, is that you've had falling rates for that whole time. And that's been my entire career um my entire life in investing not even just as a job um but starting when i did as a teenager till now is basically falling rates um because it's all during the period he's talking about of the overall fall in rates and then in terms of things like fed funds and stuff really it was only the first eight years or so that i was investing that that was anywhere near normal after that it's been you know pretty much uh low it seems
0: like the whole market like you talked about thinks that we're going to get back to like 2020 2021 markets right the fed's going to cut interest rates and then it's kind of back to risk on right and he kind of lays out a case how he thinks it's a new regime going forward i love this table that he laid out like fed behavior in 2009 mm-hmm. and 2021 highly stimulative today it's tightening inflation dormant uh, versus today a 40-year high economic outlook positive uh, versus today a recession likely and he lays out a bunch of different things and how he just thinks going forward you know maybe the Fed isn't going to cut interest rates back down to like nothing, right? Like he really believes that. And um, you know, there's going to be ample opportunities, both in credit and in stocks. But if credit is yielding, you know, five, six, seven, eight 8%, um,
1: stocks basically need to adjust for that as well. Yeah. Uh, and you know, his estimate is actually quite low. So he says there are reasons why I believe that the base interest rate over the next several years is more likely to average 2 to 4%, not far from where it is now, than 0 to 2%. That's actually really conservative compared to the past history in the United States. So yeah. if we look at since the time the Fed stopped in being involved in yield curve control as sort of the date that we use till till today, um, the first 20 years or so of that period is there on a you know certain Bretton woods thing so it's a little different than now. But um, basically, they're an independent central bank from that point on. So if we look at that, that's like 70 years or so of data. Um, they, The median Fed funds rate is basically where we are now. So it's about 4.1, 4.2 percent, something in that period. Uh, means higher, obviously, because you have a few years in the late 70s or 80s that get to a ridiculous level. So it pulls up the arithmetic mean to over four and a half percent um but what that tells you normally when you're looking at a series like that is that you would expect four four and a half percent in addition to that you know when Quan and i were looking at um doing the reports on like frost and the different banks for singular diligence so you know several years ago now um the other thing is that throughout the period overall if we take that entire period the fed missed its mark on uh inflation that the fed funds rate was too low to hit the goals that they had that they had more inflation than they wanted that's even more true than you might think because the two percent goal is a recent goal we can argue about what their goals were at different times but certainly in the beginning of that period if we go back to the 50s the goal was not even they weren't even saying we need to get two percent all the time their goal was really to um they they didn't want a recession or depression but otherwise the goal was to have you know, stable prices. That, that was certainly what they were saying and what they were thinking. You can tell that from some of the the, um, things that they said that you can find in, in books now of that period. Now, by the 70s and stuff, maybe they were saying, well, we'll never get down to anything like that. It's just a matter of getting someone under control. So maybe the goals were much higher. The, if you think about a target, it would be much higher than today's 2%. But certainly they've missed since they've done 2%. I mean, we can see cumulatively from when the Fed says 2% to now, we are now cumulatively over that. They've overshot. Mm-hmm cumulatively over that whole period on trend is now over 2%. And that's if inflation dropped to 2% tomorrow, you would still have ended up going over what you wanted. Um, and they thought they were under for all of that, for virtually that whole period. And they were. And But the overshoot that they've had of that has more than made up for that. Um, so that would mean that you'd expect even higher rates. So like, for instance, um, if you look at the history in the past, like when I was talking about looking at it and just what was the Fed funds rate, what inflation ended up being, whatever, if the United States and the global economy and everything, the financial system as it is today, it was, let's say, similar to what it's been on average over the last 70 years or whatever, more than half the time, or or half the time or more, let's say, at least half the time or more, the Fed funds rate would need to be about, at least about 5% or more to hit your goal Mm -hmm. because it was uh, at least half the time over 4% and you missed pretty significantly over that time. You'd say you'd missed by at least 1%. So like in real terms um, it certainly seems that way that the correct fed funds rate on average um, as a median number for the last 70, 75 years or so would have been somewhere around, you know, 5%. That would have been the correct rate. If we're saying, you know, if, if we're defining neutral as we were trying to get 2% inflation. Um, and that's not how the Fed defines neutral now. And the world's a different place. Population growth is a lot lower. For instance, there are demographic things that we know will not reverse. Other things we don't know if they'll reverse or not, right? We don't know if, the, you know, there's lots of other things that could change. The world could become more globalized, less globalized, this or that. We do know the population stuff won't change. Um, because that's something that's not gonna—that's pretty easy to predict decades in the future. So there are totally differences between now and then. Um, but the the rates that we've had recently don't seem to be something that you should have um, and be able to achieve the inflation goals that they had. But on the other hand, it has worked for Japan. Um, in the sense that they haven't, they have had very low rates and haven't had inflation for a very long time. Um, so it is possible, but you know, it's, it is possible to have rates that are almost at zero and to have the inflation that we're talking about. Um, so I can't rule out the possibility that it is, you know, possible, right? That, that the rates that we've seen recently could be normal rates. Mm. Um, does yeah. that change anything
0: from your perspective as you're looking at companies?
1: Yeah. No, it does change things. I mean, the since last year when we talked about this and we said, well, I think the probably the rates will maybe have to be higher than what the Fed thinks or says or whatever, but they can keep pushing to just always be surprising a little bit more in their language that, no, it's going to be a bit higher than you think. No. And so every time they do it, they do that all year long they could get to a rate that's higher than what people were predicting. So maybe I forget what it was at the end of last year. People were predicting they'll get near 3% or something. I mean, it would have been down there somewhere. Um, and they actually got to four to four and a half percent. You know, they actually exceeded it by, you know, it's probably 1.5 times or more what they said they were, what people were expecting that they would do. I don't remember what the exact estimates were, but it was probably something like that. So... Um, in looking at stocks you know and bank things is the most important for us that way but in looking at stocks throughout the year i've always penciled in six percent as where we you know from so january 1st of 2022 i was putting in six percent as where we you know as an estimate that anything that we invest in that we make decisions about whatever certainly needs to look okay if it goes from zero to six during basically 2022. it did not go from zero to six in 2022 it's only at four uh, four and a quarter four and a half um and the expectations I think from the dot plot thing is low fives you said they basically fall in the five to five and a half percent range so you're still below that number and the market expectation is even lower than that uh the trajectory is actually for it to be uh pretty early in 2023 to start coming down right I believe that's the market in the yeah you know. um so we'll see I, I about the inflation thing I should say um this months inflation report and the prior one i think were unremarkable uh to me looking into the guts of of what happened uh core goods prices fell a lot you know okay i don't i mean i believe sticky price inflation sticky cpi was exactly the same over that period so i think five and a half percent um so uh, which is you know lower and it's always been lower. The sticky price inflation as a sticky CPI has always been lower than um, in, in this period that we're talking about, it's been lower and it's not in any way a leading indicator. So when I talk about that, I look at that and stuff, it's not because it's going to help you see the turn in inflation. This may be really good at showing a turn in inflation that, that goods prices dropped a lot. Um, however, service prices didn't, labor market didn't. And if you're asking long-term what the correct interest rate is, I think it has to do with your labor market and with your services stuff. It's like when we talk about the, the Big Mac index, like what is the, why do you use a Big Mac? You use a Big Mac because it's a locally constructed product that is, that you can compare from place to place. Cause it's pretty much the same thing, although a bit different and is, you know, it's not bought on credit. It's a high frequency purchase. It's a low price purchase, you know, that sort of thing. It is, if you had to pick one thing, that would be a good thing to pick. What you don't pick is washing machines or um, big screen TVs or computers or um, or autos or, you know, any of that kind of stuff. Uh, Howard Marks talked about that in his, uh, in the, it's, you know, the memo we talked about, sea Change, but also in others, that durable goods prices are a big part. I think he asked me, what is a half a percent? a year, 0.5, 0.6% a year over the period he looked at, which is the last 25 years, the decline in um that. And the other thing about that is those are not, those are generally imports. So that's the other part about the shift from it is that the rate of, I, I mean, let's just say this. I would expect the inflation, we have no idea what will happen because I always say this, that, Part of it is to be right about these things longer term you have to n- not just predict what w- will happen based on current trends but then you have to ex- say the actual outcome is based on how others respond to that so right if you saw COVID happening and you thought oh well things won't really all get locked down and the fed will relax things but not incredibly And there won't, there'll be uh, some aid for things and whatever, but not some huge spending package. Those would have been reasonable estimates for you to have. So you never would have expected as sharp a decline or as huge a rebound or a lot of inflation. So you could have expected slight deflationary pressures or something from that. Or you could have expected, well, there'll be a bit of transitory inflation because of supply things or whatever. But you didn't, you would have had to predict government response and, and central bank response and all that. Same thing here. Um... But I would expect in the future that inflation in the United States could be quite a bit higher than in places like China and in places where we import a lot of things that we're talking about from. Um, There are very different uh, pressures in some of those other economies. Um, There's a bunch of economies that have, unlike the United States, have greatly increased the amount of debt that they have for business things and invested a lot in factories and in Apartments and housing and whatever things a lot of other things, but a lot of long-term Fixed assets financed by a lot of debt growth. There hasn't been a lot of since the financial crisis. It's not like the United States um, Private sector has gone on borrowing a lot of money and spending a lot in these long-term asset things um, Obviously the last few years we've had large deficits uh, government deficits, but otherwise we're not talking about some debt-fueled um, Investment binge. Whereas China's been on a decade long, like, you know, historically unprecedented growth in debt and um, high investment in uh, sort of things that are pretty far away from the consumer, which is similar to what happened in Japan and stuff. So you could certainly see a lot of deflationary pressures in some other places. And if you import things from them, then maybe that will have a, that will contribute to it. Right. Um, But the other thing is, that I always feel when we talk about this is predicting future inflation. The problem with predicting future inflation, like people say, oh, well, population will have this effect, which will cause this effect on inflation, or, um, you know, I think the internet will cause, uh, is a deflationary pressure in this point or whatever. Okay, but the the issue is that you have a central bank, which basically has a target. So, so um, in a sense, what you for the most part, except for some extreme things like the zero bound that they can't really do all that much about, they can they can do some special stuff to try to get someone below that, but there's not much they can do about that. Other than that kind of thing, they are largely responsible for inflation in the sense that it is theoretically possible that they can set a rate to get the inflation rate, they set Fed funds rates to get the inflation rate they want. Now that doesn't mean they're responsible like they're causing inflation, And it doesn't mean that running large fiscal deficits or anything like that has nothing to do with it, Um, like there's that it doesn't matter. What it means is that in theory, they have the tools, they have the capability that they could offset anything done in that is a shock one way or the other or is a force one way or the other. So, you know, if you didn't have deficits, then obviously you wouldn't require the same Fed funds rate to achieve the same inflation over time. But If you do have deficits, then you can just change the rate to offset that fact. You know, if you do have a shock from whatever energy things, whatever, then you could always do it one way or the other, or what we talked about with COVID. In theory, if they really can set the rate at wherever they want and they're willing to do it, they don't cave into any sort of pressures or whatever, then the rate of inflation that you'll get over time should be the rate that they're able to stomach, right? So like... In theory, in the very long term, what will the inflation rate be? The simplest answer that you would think is what can the Fed live with? Um, what are they willing to do and what kind of inflation can they live with? And that should be the right answer for the most part, except for like when we talk about the zero bound or something like that. So whatever happens in other ways, how far will they go to offset that? Um the issue now, of course, is that people are expecting a recession. And so they're expecting a cut in rates quickly to deal with that. Um, the longer term thing for investing in general and just worrying about it overall is that what does it look like after that? You know, we've talked about that. I don't know that it, I, I do think that it does not matter, did not matter how quickly they get to some rate first of all you can communicate where you're going and if people really believe that you're going to be at six uh like say if they market was completely convinced you're gonna be at six to seven percent sometime in 2023 i don't think they care if you did that with some front loaded high rate hikes or slower over time it would if you really could communicate that incredible way it would trickle through to things pretty you know this year in a way that's not that different from what we've seen how you spread out the rate hikes but um i think that the issue is what do they really, what does the market really believe about um, what will happen when there's a recession? How far you'll cut it and how long you'll keep it down. The market obviously expects, and it's not just the market; it's a bunch of people at um, strategists and things like that, investment banks, and all of those expect a pretty big uh, decline in inflation, regardless of what the um, Fed funds rate is at. So it's not just that they expect the expectation is not just that the fed funds rate will be lower and inflation quite a bit higher but actually that inflation will still come down even though the fed funds rate will come down a bunch in a recession um so we'll see i think the thing that i've always said is like the bigger longer term thing is really what does it look like at the bottom of a recession where are you with the fed funds rate and how quickly are you willing to go back up so, basically, what does inflation look like there? Um, it is interesting to wonder, like, is 2% the bottom? It's now a minimum for a while. Uh, because if they really mean 2% average, that's hard to believe that that's going to happen. That isn't the expectation. So, basically, markets have an expectation that, say, inflation will be 2 to 3%, you know, more like 3%, and the Fed will be aggressively cutting, um you know so it would require cutting rates even when inflation is well above your target so you know we'll see if that happens but what if it's three percent you cut and it starts to go back up from three or two what if it's it never hits two percent but it gets close but it's rising after that what do you do um, so we'll see. Normally, if you have a recession, obviously uh, unemployment increases by more than two percent. You know, two three percent is not uncommon at all. So if we're at three and a half percent, we're through at three point seven or something, then you'd expect that we'd be close to six, right? So that's the kind of environment to think in terms of like what would they do? Well, they'd now be making the decision with say six percent unemployment right that's kind of the question to ask is is that possible now what they say of course is that it doesn't have to go that high because we could just get the number of uh jobs uh opportunities jobs you know unfilled jobs versus job seekers down to like one instead of 1.5 or whatever it's at now you know that we could bring it down and then it doesn't really have to cause unemployment but normally once you set these things in motion the it, the feds never caused a small degree of unemployment without causing a large one. And they know that. Um, so, you know, once unemployment ticks up by more than a little bit, it's almost always um, increased by several percent or by a few percent, I should say.
0: Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us in the Focus Compounding podcast. If this is the first time you're tuning in, uh, go to focuscompounding.com to get access to everything that we put out into the investing world blog posts. Uh, we run capital, we manage capital You get information on that by clicking that invest with us tab. Uh, and then we have our podcast backlog there as well. Wherever you are listening or watching to us, make sure you hit the subscribe button. Uh, give us a rating review. That still goes a very long way for us. And we will see you in the next podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Take care.